Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached the verdict? The verdict Welcome the verdict. to the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast, your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. All right. All right. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. Welcome in, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of John and Jordan on Justice. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Tiffany Devereaux. She's the founder of Jury X, a jury and voir dire consulting company that we have used in our firm with tremendous success. And uh, without further ado, Tiffany, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Doing well. Thanks a lot for having me. So as you know, John and I, we're, we're primarily based in Florida. That's where most of our trial cases are. We're doing predominantly single plaintiff personal injury cases. And before Jury X crossed paths with us, John and I used to shake a magic eight ball and say, is this prospective juror good? And that worked pretty well, but your system seems to work a lot better. John and I uh, owe a debt of gratitude to you and your team, specifically Mary Sheedy, who came down in person to uh, a trial we had in Miami a couple of months back that resulted in a multi-million dollar verdict. But can you give some insight, starting maybe with a broad overview of, of how Jury X is approaching the the problem that is jury selection and, and the value proposition they add for trial lawyers? Sure. Um, so uh, Jury X helps attorneys identify biases in potential jurors using artificial and human intelligence. And so what that specifically means is um, during voir dire, we are helping attorneys um, by looking at uh, potential jurors, social media and public records. And um, we're doing this, you know, while you guys are questioning and throughout the day, um, and we score these potential jurors. Um, and by doing this, uh, we are able to create what we call a strike priority list um, for you guys to eliminate those jurors who are not open to hearing the plaintiff's arguments in your case. That's good. Yeah, I thought I thought it was pretty effective. I'm sorry, like what you guys do, you know, from a trial lawyer standpoint is incredibly scientific, not just it's, you know, picking out a hat like we have done in, in times past. Yes. Um, and so how we've done this, uh, how this process evolved is um, my brother is an attorney. He is uh, based in Florida and he had these tobacco trials. Um, so I was helping him on uh, kind of more doing evidence research. Um, my background is journalism and photojournalism. I have a master's degree from University of Chapel Hill. I'm sorry, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And uh, we are based in, here in Chapel Hill. Um, and so what I figured out for Greg's, um, it was Greg Prysock as my brother, um, what I figured out for his cases was um, if we could look at specific information on each potential juror and rank that information um, according to this matrix that um, I developed over time. And uh, what that does is it tells us basically who's on our side, who's not on our side, and then which um, person we need to eliminate based on kind of degrees, if you will, of influence that they may have on the panel. Um, and so it was effective um, uh, in these tobacco trials. And then we ended up broadening that to other uh, PI cases across the state of Florida. And then we went on to other states as well. Um, we were able to, in Florida, uh, you guys have special laws um, for public records. And as a journalist, that was one of the things that uh, was like the first thing that I started looking at was what available information uh, there was in Florida. Um, and so one of the things that we were able to do is, um, you know, collect some large databases that are regularly updated. Um, and so we were able to create some programs that gets some information ahead of time, uh, even before Wadir starts, even before we know the jurors, because we do it on everybody who was summoned. Um, and then once we find out who was, is going to be in your courtroom, um, then we use uh, some of the 
uh, human intelligence comes into play on the, inf the information that we're gathering and looking at. It, it reminds me of uh, this idea, like, I mean, all this data is out there floating around and people are free to ignore it, or maybe they don't even actually have the ability to figure out how to pick it out of thin air, so to speak, and, and interpret it. But you guys seriously have, have seemed to crack the code a little bit. I want to step back because just a little bit in the process as a trial lawyer, I think most lawyers who are preparing for trial, you know, they're ready to walk into the courtroom on day one of Wadir. They're ready to rely on mostly their experience in past trials, of which they're making kind of judgments in a stereotypical fashion about people's profession, ethnicity, you know, education, et cetera. They're relying on their intuition, their gut. Um, I know for years when I did mostly criminal, that was, that was where it all fell. And then I think for years, even before I started practicing, there was this growing sentiment of you can focus group your case. You know, you could preview it to a room of strangers who will never end up actually sitting for you, but should theoretically give you an insight into who it would be an ideal juror and all that. But you guys are different. You guys are on the front lines. You're kind of, you know, walking into the trial the same day the lawyers are. Maybe you get a questionnaire with their names a little bit in advance. But, you know, generally speaking, you're coming into it fresh and without a bunch of information. And you're able to just quickly digest, interpret, and kick out this meaningful data that you can make decisions from. Um, I'm sure that wasn't an easy process. There was probably a lot of trial and error, I bet, right? Yes. Um, so when I first started this, uh, so Keith Mitnick is one of the um, attorneys with uh, that was partners with my brother, Morgan and Morgan. And um, so Keith Mitnick was, uh, you know, really helpful in pointing me in some like when I would have a question about oh, would this be an, uh, something that would be desirable or less desirable um, so he was really helpful in, in answering a lot of my questions um, you know I did do a lot of academic research um, into the history of jury selection and um, you know people jury consultants essentially and how long they've been around and what the processes have been in the past um, and, and then going from there, um, and one of the things that I, it's just really categorizing and thinking deeply and taking sociology, um, you know, theories and bringing it all together um, for jury selection. And I just, I don't think that that's been done to this level. Um, and, you know, jury consultants certainly have a lot more experience as far as, um, you know, understanding the psych, because a lot of times they're um, psychologists. And so just understanding how when a person, um, you know, is responding in court, um, they're great at analyzing that. However, um, what I feel happens is a lot of times people may respond in court, um, but they're also taking in kind of like a mob mentality. They're listening to what others have said about um, their views on whatever the question was. Um, and it may be something that they have never thought of before, such as um, should there be caps on damages? And um, Obviously, that's a question that a lot of attorneys ask um, during civil litigation. And, you know, a lot of people have not thought about that. Um, should there be a maximum? And then somebody else answering that before they, um, it's their turn to answer, may influence um, their answer in court. However, when they are back with their own thoughts and you know, thinking about your case and um, how much to award um, and that type of information, they may not actually, um, you know, feel that there should be caps on damages um, or vice versa. Right. And so by looking at a lot of the other um, information um, that we find about them, that they have said about themselves, that they have described on social media about social issues, um, we're able to digest a lot more of that information than is presented in court uh, and come up with uh, an analysis on how that person would likely respond in the jury room. Yeah, I thought Go ahead, John. just in, in our personal experience in the last trial and for 
those individuals who haven't thought about bringing a jury consultant live do it. If you have the case, to, it, the energy it takes to get to trial, you want to be there with all the resources that you can have. And Jury X, for us, you know, interestingly, they were pretty spot on, right? There were a juror that they thought was going to be one of the for us, but a leader in the group, right? So you you want to you want a leader, maybe one or two, and then some followers, right? And if they're bad, if they end up being a follower, it's okay. That's and what, exactly right. Right. So we had the leader that you guys wanted. And then there was another person that Jordan, I think, Keela, uh, were like on the fence, gut, didn't necessarily want. I was didn't really have an opinion either way. Mary said, put her on the jury. Well, what happened? She ended up being the four person and she ended up being the one keeping the number up, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah, and the and, leader and that, and the leader was the yeah. leader, but he kind of held the rest of the people and then submitted to who was ultimately the four person to reach like, like a compromise. So, so what I um, kind of think of is happening in the um, jury room is, you know, we, we, everybody knows that we need a four person. We need a leader who is going to organize everybody. We need somebody who can be persuasive enough to bring people over to their side. And of course we want that person to be open to the plaintiff's arguments. Um, and so when, once they are in the um, jury room and making these decisions, we also need somebody who I call um, I kind of start, started thinking about them as like the whip as we have in Congress. Um, so the person who gets everybody else behind the leader. Um, and so by doing that, now you have two people <coughs> who are you know, supporting an argument one way or the other. And um, then everybody else who are those followers are falling behind or, you know, falling into line. Now with the followers and whether they're good or bad for us um, and that not mattering, um, the reason why, you know, we want to keep some of those because, you know, the strategy is that we only want to have one or two leaders. Um, from primarily, we'd like one strong leader and then one more supportive leader um, who would be the whip. And, um, and then that will block out a lot of the other potentially bad um, leaders that may come into the panel. So I think in your case, there was like a lot of, an, an undesirable number of attorneys that could have been in the panel. Um, and I think it was like 10% or something from the venire of the, the uh, people were attorneys. And so, you know, um, sometimes I, they're good. Sometimes they're bad. A lot of times people want to eliminate them. Right. Um, and so by having um, leaving this woman on, uh, that we did, who did become the four person, we were able to block one of the other, um, I think it was a, a person that would have been a high level leader and right. very influential and probably bad for you guys. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think the outcome obviously validates the methodology. Mm -hmm. um, obviously we were deferring to Mary substantially, if not exclusively, and it worked out favorably. But on that point of being able to defer to Mary or whoever it is from Jury X that's gonna be in the courtroom, with other clients, other trial lawyers. What I found um, really meaningful for me was so often if John's doing the questioning at Wadir, then I'm doing the note-taking and so is Keela or whatever, you can just interchange us. And the people who are doing note-taking, we're really trying to take good notes, including timestamps, right? We're trying to prepare for cause and preempts and it doesn't free your mind up because we can't multitask that well to really be engaged, or at least as a listener, to be an active listener to every last thing, or maybe pick up on body language cues when, when John's talking to one perspective juror, but another one's starting to shift in his or her seat. By having Mary there with the live feed transcript from the court reporter, even if she didn't, she's taking copious notes. It gave me the confidence to say, hey, I don't have to do this. I can be in the moment with John, maybe pass him a note on something to follow up on, whatever. And I found tremendous value in that, which I don't normally have, because it's not the same value as 
just bring someone from your firm to take notes. That's not what I mean. That's not a one for one. This is you can defer to someone who's taking notes with a purpose uh, and who's going to, you know, that's part of the methodology. And that really allowed me to do what I do best, I think, which is be available to John in that particular scenario. Yeah. And I, I think with you guys, the benefit we did live, um, I forget when they do with a court reporter. What is it when they, they take live feed? No, there's another real time. It's real time. Real time. Yeah. Uh, we we call it remote access to real time because we like to have it in our office as well correct. because we are also taking copious notes in our office. So not only is Mary taking notes, you're taking notes, um, but we're having somebody take notes so that if somebody says something that's a cause challenge and we know we're going to be able to get them off, we don't have to invest that time into that person. We can continue looking at other people. Well, yeah, we took a break, and, and Mary, when we split for lunch, was like, these people you can avoid, they're already gone. you got to talk to this person, follow up on this issue. Um, but what I thought, to Jordan's point about giving confidence, is some I don't get the chance to talk to everybody. Sometimes I do, or sometimes I don't have a lot of information. But with Jury X, you guys doing stuff on the back end, we can at least have some information on a prospective juror, if they were number, you know, 48 that you don't think you're going to get to, but you end up getting back there that you may or may not have to ask a lot of questions to. So I found that to be extremely helpful. Um, or if I was on the fence, I didn't, you know, not to say we do away with our own note and feeling, but it gives you that ability that if you're just on the fence, you know, you have the science, you have, it works and it, it worked well for us. So, you know, it gives you that ability to trust it. So, yeah. One of the, one of these things too, just like I've been thinking about ever since we've used your services is, well, I've been thinking about this particular point ever since I've been a trial lawyer, but more recently through the lens of using your services for years, you'd walk into a courtroom, everyone in the panel, the of prospective jurors, they're strangers to you or they should be and almost always are. And you're basically spending however much time the judge gives you asking them to do public speaking, number one, about themselves and their innermost, you know, thoughts, honesty and bias and prejudice they have. What a, I mean, that's so antithetical, if you think about it, to how you would expect an environment to be created for someone to openly share the truth about them. And so you can only take what they say with a grain of salt, I think in that scenario. You're going to have people who are deathly afraid of speaking, public speaking. It's right. The number one fear. You're going to have people who love to hear the sound of their voice and you can't get them to shut up. But with your services, you get this ability. Okay. What they tell you in the courtroom in public is one thing. Let's, I think you even use this phrase. So I'm going to borrow it for you. It's just, let's see how they describe themselves outside of the courtroom, but still in public. You know, how do they hold themselves out on social media or some other place where they are holding themselves out to the public. That's perhaps the most meaningful data that you're going to get. And I'm sure your system accounts for that appropriately. Yeah. And, and that is exactly um, what we are trying to do is find out because you guys have limited amount of time. You know, sometimes you guys have a couple of hours. Um, we've gone into, you know, federal court where they have 15 minutes. Um, the judge does voir dire and maybe the attorney has five minutes of follow up. Um, they might extend it to another five minutes. And, um, and the other thing that, you know, I, I don't think that really um, is thought about that much is, you know, you you have these people and one of the things that we are trying to do is get people off for cause, right? And so we're trying to get people to tell us that they're biased. And then you have this judge who's sitting up there, you know, on on the judge, in the judge's bench and, you know, they've got their, the pomp, you know, they've got their black robe mm -hmm. and then they are asking, oh, but but can you set aside your biases in, in this case and listen to this case? And of course, you guys um, try to get it in the person's head. Hey, you know what? Everybody has biases. It's okay. Um, but it's also very hard for a lot of people to tell a judge no, I'm sorry, judge. I can't. I am. I'm biased. And, you know, nobody wants to be biased. Everybody wants to have an open mind. Um, and then especially to a judge who that's what they do for a living. Um, and then as far as uh, the background information, you know, I think that one of the ways that we are different is that there are other companies out there who, um, you know, use, they have come to 
this space from a technical background. Um, and so they are applying um, technology to the legal industry and to jury selection. And it doesn't necessarily transfer over exactly. Um, and so what Jury X is, is we have done this organically. So we have approached this from a legal perspective and grown into the technology and found out what technology and what resources are available out there uh, so that we could use that, harness it. And, you know, there's a lot of data that we are able to gather. Some of it is just noise. And that's the other thing that a lot of people um, don't really understand is that, you know, I don't care how many times somebody posts about their dog. I don't care that somebody is um, volunteering at a you know an animal shelter um, that does so show a little bit you know some compassion however what you know that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be open to your argument um, and so that's what we're looking for first and foremost and then also who is going to have the most influence um, and so by approaching it this way we're not only looking at what is happening in the courtroom as the traditional jury consultant would do, but we are also bringing the technology in and harnessing the um, availability of, you know, just the latest information that we can use in the latest programs um, to combine that. And that all comes into our matrix um, that helps us decide quickly, um, you know, the, best jurors for your panel and the ones that, you know, are least favorable. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I'm, I can't wait for the next trial so we can use you guys again. I mean, I know we had one settle out after we use you, but we were ready to use you in a different County in Alachua yeah, County. We had two cases and well, Hey, maybe it's the good jury verdict you got for us working with you. And now no one wants to see us in trial. You know, they've settled out just, we settled another one yesterday that we were going to use you on. And, um, <laughs> It's it's great. Yeah, it's a it's a quiver. Um, what is it? It's a is it a bow in the quiver? Am I saying that right? You should uh, put an arrow in your quiver and shoot it with a bow. Arrow usually. from in my quiver. No, for jury selection, I look at it like not only that, it was fun, right? Like, yeah. look, Mary, oh. we worked with Mary. She was fun. Like, it was very you know, you guys came early before trial. We met, talked about the case. We actually had done focus group work. We gave that to your team. So you kind of had an idea on the back end of who are we looking for as well, dissecting that data, right? While we allowed to just prepare, get ready, do what we need to do. And, and I think it's a, it's a tremendous asset to have a team like yours working with us hand in hand. And, you know, I see the posts. Um, I don't know if it's in a lot of times in LinkedIn, verdict after verdict after verdict, after verdict, working yeah. with Jury X that the, um, having good results. And so I see yeah, it's obviously it, working. It, it's really rewarding. And you know, the, the reason why, in addition to helping my brother, the reason why I wanted to do this is because, um, you know, I know that there's a lot of powerful insurance companies, powerful corporations that are out there and they have, I believe a little bit too much, um, maybe money in politics. Um, I think that they're influencing our laws a little bit too much. Um, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that I, I'm really focused on is so social justice. Um, and that was, you know, that's something that some journalists um, want to, they want to help out the world. And that was what my um, goal was going to be was, you know, I was going to save the world through photojournalism and um, through feature writing and uh, investigative journalism. And um, I found that, you know, I wasn't able to work in that industry. Um, you know, I'm a mom and I wanted to own my own business. Um, and so mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a freelancer. I didn't want to work all by myself. I really find it fun um, and engaging to work in the courtroom with our attorneys. And we add a lot of value by doing that. Um, and then, you know, working with a team of people who are really smart, um, who've contributed a lot to the company over the years, as far as 
um, being able to categorize uh, potential jurors in ways that other companies haven't been able to do. And so it's, just, it's very fascinating. And then also, you know, continuing to um, educate ourselves in sociology and um, finding out like the, you know, the latest as far as like, uh, I had one client was like, I, I don't like millennials. I just, I don't like them. I don't know, understand them. Um, and so that's something that we kind of did a deep dive into to find out like, what is going on? Why are they slightly different than what um, would you know, seem to be so, you know, true for a, a generation X or a baby boomer. Why are they so different? And so that's the type of thing that we really love doing at Jury X. And it, um, the other thing is that it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it really is a lot of fun. So Tiffany, obviously having worked with you, I have the benefit of knowing kind of how the, the sausage gets made, so to speak. And I know that it's not just like this one size fits all solution. You guys have a multitude of tools at your disposal and you kind of leave it to the attorneys, which I think is the appropriate way to say, look, we can help you in 10 different ways. Here are the three we would definitely suggest. But, you know, there's these other things like in-depth profiles, for example, that are kind of an add-on, but I found value in. Can you kind of uh, educate the listeners out there to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things that we really uh, focused on early on is, as far as our process, is we don't want you guys to change um, anything how you are approaching your voir dire. Um, you know, there might be a couple of tweaks um, if there there might be a question or two that we would like to see. But as far as you know, if if you've been doing um, jury selection, if you've been you know going to trial, we would like for you to continue your process because you figured out something that works for you. Um, and we like to just be able to plug in, um, and that's why we come down the day before and we just want you to be comfortable with our scoring system and understanding that but then once we seat the jury um, you know we also are very focused on how you communicate with that jury um, so you know my background is journalism and before that I was in advertising and so that is um, very much focused on how to communicate with your audience you have to keep in mind who your target audience is and so on your case um, you have six jurors and sometimes one or two alternates so you have you know up to eight people that you really need to focus on and you're going to have to um, communicate a different way to different people in that panel. And so if you have somebody who is very methodical, um, who's very detail oriented, you might need to have a little bit more precise evidence. Um, whereas if you have somebody who's more into the bigger picture, um, you might need to um, just discuss and, and not focus on the details, but discuss the broader implications of what happened when the person was injured um, and, and how it, um, and of course, proving your case. Right. Um, and so that is what our in-depth profiles do. Uh, we give you a snapshot of exactly who that person is because we don't really have time to do that during voir dire um, because we're looking at so many people. But then once you seat those jurors, then we're able to go back and say, okay, this is who this person is. And these are some things that you might wanna think about when you're communicating to them. And sometimes we've had um, attorneys who will Actually, we, we one of the things that we say uh, or show is um, how they they speak to their peers um, in social media. And so if somebody is communicating with them and they're responding back, um, that is something that we will clip and give to you guys. And what that does is it gives you are they using um cur you know a lot of current um vernacular like uh, a lot of slang or are they very precise in their grammatical um expression and so i had an attorney uh, one time who was in a small remote town um and the jurors were not very sophisticated they were not very educated and uh, the ones that were on our panel. And so I told, I asked the guy to um, tell me about his opening statements and he, he you know, started sharing it. And I said, you know, just hold on a second. 
we need to bring this down a little bit because you're going to be speaking over these jurors heads and that's something that we all do sometimes you know if you've got um, a specific education or specific knowledge in something we're using terms that they that other people may not understand um, so just making sure that we are speaking to our audience is one of the most um, important things I think in these trials. Yeah, it's not like, I mean, obviously, you know, once jury selection's done, the in-person rep leaves, but the data remains. And even for that matter, I mean, for us, Mary remained available because in the in the one case we used you guys on, I don't know, it was a bled into a second week of trial, but at some point during trial, there was the potential due to something that had happened for one of the sitting jurors who was not an alternate to have to be excused. And then the question was like, well, there's two alternates sitting, which one do we prefer to the extent that we can do that? But Mary was available. And even then, so now we're mid trial, but here we go, hearkening back and there's no guesswork. It's not just like, well, there, everyone's an alternate. I guess we were satisfied, put them on. You know, there was even a preference there. But I want to get back to something John said. He didn't use this term, but, you know, Tiffany, you've said you guys have a scoring system. Obviously, I've been there. I've seen it. John talked about the experience he had working, you know, hand in hand with Mary during selection. And as the person who was there to kind of observe it all, I do feel like there's a bit of a gamification feel to jury selection. So it used to feel kind of just shooting in the dark a little bit, but now with the scoring system, it actually feels a bit like a game. And I don't mean that to make light of it at all, um, but it just feels easier to play through that process, knowing that you have a scoring system that you're relying on. Uh, maybe this gets back to the original concept of just having confidence in who you're ending up selecting because there's a numerical value or some some qualitative value that you guys have ascribed to these people. And just like a game would have it, you're just like, no, this is a high score. This is who you want, you know, removes a lot of the doubt. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I feel comfortable, you know, telling you guys that like, um, you know, our scoring process is um, from a negative four to a positive four and, you know, and there's varying degrees. I mean, the negative fours are people that we don't want. The positive fours are people that we do want um, because we think that they're going to be open to the plaintiff's arguments in this case. Um, and so, you know, making sure that our attorneys understand that and um, how these uh, different scores interplay um, is really important because it becomes a priority strike list. Um, and then, you know, um, we're able to strategize within the panel how we're going to use our strikes, um, especially in Florida, where I think that Florida has, um, you know, not every other state has the same system that Florida does. I think that Florida has the best um, jury selection system if the judges use the ones that are, you know, the majority of the judges do use. Um, and that's, you know, it makes it uh, more of a strategy. Um, and so it is, it's a lot of fun. Um, and in the past, we, um, so in our in our office, we have a large research room um, where it's, you know, people are around in large um, uh, conference room, if you will. And we have a big screen TV that's up and we have um, the transcripts on there. And so we're reading, you know, sometimes we have somebody that's doing the transcripts and, and taking notes from that. But when, then sometimes we're just looking up and seeing where they are and, and what the judge has said or, um, uh, you know, what an attorney has said, or, oh my gosh, can you believe that this uh, juror said this? And then um, when it comes to the, what we call the peremptory series, um, it's a little bit like a sporting event for us because, you know, we're kind of cheering our clients on, on eliminating um, potential jurors. And when defense eliminates somebody that we didn't like, you know, we literally do cheer. Um, we're doing, you know, fist pumps and stuff. Um, so it, it is a lot of fun for us. Um, it, and it's also very meaningful um, to everybody that works at Jury X, um, you know, in order to kind of level the playing field, if you will. Yeah, Florida has some of the best jury selection process. Um, you know, I read some of these things that are different in different states of different even the basis to get someone excluded for cause is great in Florida. <laughs> we have a reasonable doubt standard. If there is a reasonable doubt as to their impartiality, we err on the side of exclusion, right? right. Some states are, it's like a much higher standard than that. You know, it has to be like, you know, c almost confirmed 
they will be biased and never. Not just like maybe, you know, because if we even get those jurors that say, well, I think I can exclude it. And I and I asked this follow up question and it's actually from Mitnick. And he says, well, some people, when they say I think they mean 100 percent, they're sure or about their 90 percent. So when you say I think you're about 90 percent sure it won't affect you. And they're like, yes, well, that, that you're out. You got 10% that thinks it's coming in. That's reasonable doubt. You know, so it's a very effective, good system here. And it is like gamesmanship. Not gamesmanship, because I don't want to suggest we're like playing the odds. But when it's a back and forth strike, what are they going to do? Who are they going to strike? You know, and we were telling the story off before we got started that in this trial, they struck one of the people we wanted off. You know, Mary was, you know, hitting my foot under the table because we were excited that we got to save a peremptory for someone else. So it was like really good. We had the notes. We knew we wanted them off. We were going to have to use a peremptory and they did it themselves. So it's it, so it's very, you know, it's a fluid, fun system. Obviously, we're putting in the work, asking the questions. You got to get the juries to participate. But with that information and the data, you guys in your back office, the live in support and trial, I mean, it's, it's a full faceted approach to jury selection, and, and I, I loved it. I, I do have this question. Your home office is in North Carolina. So what states are you operating? I mean, I, essentially, you probably can operate in every state. but We do. Yeah. Um, okay. So we have done cases in North Carolina. We've done them in Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky. I mean, you know... It, California, we do a lot of cases in California. Um, we've got one coming up in Texas. Um, I, I'm just, I think maybe Arizona. We've done more than 450 trials. I can't keep track of them. That's great. Um, I started this business and uh, I think the, the first case that my brother tried to get me to help on was in 2013. Um, so 2014 was like, I think I did three cases that year. Um, and, you know, getting back to what you were saying about the strategy and, and when the other side um, dismisses somebody that we think is good for us, um, sometimes, you know, people are like, why would they dismiss that person? I mean, look at our, you know, the information that we have on them. It's so awful. Of course, they're going to be bad for us. Why would they do that? And, you know, it really is so helpful to have this background information from outside sources because they have no idea how great that person could have been for them. Um, and so I sometimes um, I wonder, you know, a lot of times people are using parallel legals who you know are helping them on the case as well as trying to do research on these potential jurors and so by uh, you know uh, and it's not that the paralegal doesn't know who they want it's just that they're not able to get to all of the information that right. we're able to because we do this you know week in and week out um, and so sometimes you know uh, going up against tobacco companies, uh, you know, was, I mean, that's what I cut my teeth on um, as far as developing the system. And so you have to be fierce, right, um, against those tobacco companies because they've been using jury consultants since the 80s. Um, and they use a very large team and they, you know, sometimes they do it on every person that was summoned. Um, so I guess that that kind of competition uh, just made me want to focus on exactly the types of jurors that we would want, um, who we think are going to be open to our argument. And so, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we've, uh, I think that we've done like 49 cases against the tobacco company and we've lost four or five. Um, so it's, that's when I, you know, I am able to demonstrate that this process is, is repeatable and it's scalable. So, right. you know, we do multiple cases a week, typically. So it's, yeah. it's great. I, I think fun. your last comment about going up against tobacco and they've been using jury consultants or something similar since the 80s, that really breathes air into what I think is the larger point that many people probably are thinking about, and but they're not really doing anything about, meaning we should not presume as trial lawyers that just because you're going into trial in what I'll call a routine automotive crash case that 
the insurer on the other side has not invested in jury research, jury consulting for their team. I don't think you can make that assumption. I think if anything, it's uh, foolish to do so. And this gets to the ultimate value decision for the trial lawyer, because this is not an inexpensive, it's not cheap or inexpensive to, to hire you guys, nor should it be. But this gets to the whole cost benefit. And if it's worthwhile, I think if you were to survey most trial lawyers nationwide, the consensus would be jury selection is the most important or second most important thing. I think it's the most important. Well, if that's true, and if you pick the wrong jury, then you're, you're from opening to close and all your beautiful exhibits and all your well-paid experts, they're talking to deaf ears and showing to blind eyes, right? I mean, that's how I even found you. John and I had tried a case in Lake County. We picked a terrible jury out of a terrible pool. And even though it was a quote unquote plain of verdict, it was a loss, a horrific loss. And you reached out to me on LinkedIn after seeing a post and you were kind enough to do some kind of free debriefing. And, and that's what kind of cued me. And I'm like, what are we yeah. doing here? We work these cases up for years. We want to get these cases to trial. The client deserves a good result. And then even though we know jury selection is the most important thing, we're not willing to invest the money to get it done. And I, I mean, John and I will never go back. I mean, we're kind of like, we're, we're converted, so to speak. But I think for the people out there saying, well, I don't have the money. How do you know? It's like, if as long as you think it's the most important part of trial, then that's where you should be investing. Right. You know, take some of the money you were going to spend on these fun animated visuals, maybe, or the expert that you probably don't need to come live and allocate it over to a company like Jury X and see over, you know, two or three cases, if you're going to get it back, I think you'll get it back 10, 20, maybe even a hundredfold, you know? And so I just want to speak to the audience out there who's has these reservations like, Oh, it must be nice to have the money to spend on this. It's no, it's a, it's an educated calculated uh, investment for the client. And I think to your point, you only lost four out of whatever 50 trials against tobacco odds are it's going to work out in your favor, you know? Yeah, um, it is, uh, you know, like I said, it is a repeatable process um, that is very um, successful. Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, my brother first said to me and why he wanted me to help is he's like, you know, look, I mean, everybody knows that um, tobacco, you know, started targeting children. They were marketing to children. They knew that nicotine was addictive. Um, all well before, you know, academia knew that. And um, it doesn't really matter. All it comes down to is whether the jury or the people in the jury believe that somebody has the right to sue the tobacco company. Um, and that's really what it comes down to for every case. Um, you know, just having people who are open to hearing the evidence on both sides. Um, but a lot of times, you know, the plaintiff's attorneys are um, have their backs up against the wall, you know, yeah. because so many people are anti um, plaintiff friendly. Um, so that's really, you know, what we're trying to do is level the playing field on that. And, you know, I know that um, one of the things that happened in Florida was um, the uh, nursing home industry. Um, they were being sued a lot, I believe, um, in the 90s. And, you know, some people thought that they cleaned up their act, but really what happened from my understanding is that there was legislation that was enacted um, that allowed a little bit more leeway to their um, industry. And so, you know, that's, that's really not fair because it's, you know, there's not a lobby group for these people who are in the nursing homes, right. um, or at least a, a very large and successful one with a lot of money behind it. Um, and so by being able to level the playing field and uh, finding jurors who are open to the plaintiff's arguments, I feel like, you know, we're doing a little bit of social justice. You are. Oh, she's that's speaking right to you with open yeah. to plaintiff's arguments. That's how John talks all the time. I'm not that way. I used to be pro plaintiff, pro defense or anti plaintiff. And John is more like you, Tevin. Just, you're just looking for people who are open. I need and people that are open-minded. If, 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 if we have open-minded jurors that are receptive to our arguments, I believe we're going to win every case. I a hundred percent believe that, you know, it's, it's the I, ones that dig I am in. With you on that. Yeah, yeah. That say, no, they're just like, sitting in that corner like i don't care what it is no one's paying me for my back pain that damn ambulance right. chases out there and there's people that like that exist and you know we can flesh them out get that information um and it's just a vital asset 
to, to anything. And I, and I, for jur- for the one thing I want to add, if there's plaintiff's lawyers, there are, you know, litigation funding opportunities out there to help offset some of that hard direct cost of the lawyers for purposes of using services like this. So there's, you know, if you have questions or anything about that, you know, let me know. I can, you know, put you in touch with some good people that can help facilitate that because at the end of the day, if you're trying to do the best by your client, it's something that you should have, especially in new jurisdictions that you guys can provide, you know, that, that background information that we just don't have because we don't necessarily practice there all the time. And, and that's another area um, that we're also able to help on. Um, if it's a new jurisdiction, you know, we're able to actually go in and do surveys. Um, you know, we don't do focus groups per se, um, but we're able to do, you know, written surveys and find out um, more information about how this community would receive your um, your case and your arguments. And the other thing with that is that, you know, one of the things that I, I'm not crazy about on um, focus groups is that a lot of times um, they're not statistically reliable and, um, you know, they're just not able to get, it's too cost too costly to hire so many um, people, you know, 100 plus people to come in for a mock trial. Um, and so, one of the things that we're able to do is, um, you know, get the surveys out to people and, um, and we are very interested in mirroring the, the respondents um, based on the types of people who are more likely to be in your um, venire. And the reason why is because, you know, uh, sometimes if you're paying somebody like 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever it is, um, to come in, you know, you're not getting those high level influencers a lot of times um, who are coming in and telling you what they think about your case. Um, and so this is one way that we're able to, to do that. Um, and so those different communities. So if we've not even been into um, a specific area, we're able to go find some um background information on these potential jurors uh, who are going to be summoned for your case. And I know we're obviously focusing on the jurors, prospective jurors, and rightfully so. But I wanted to share just anecdotally now with the benefit of hindsight, I feel like there's a secondary, almost unintended benefit of using, you know, Jury X. Uh, That's the only company I've used and, and intend to use. I'm sure there are others out there, but where it's like you walk in a courtroom Uh, let's say you've never tried a case in front of that particular judge and within 15 minutes or so the judge picks up on if not outright asks and confirms who is this person oh this is our jury consultant right and they're set up they're there they're dedicated they're listening they're part of that process come time to make selections now i'm not you know judges are humans uh if they hear our side with our jury consultant saying judge at 948 prospective juror you know abc said this this is why we're moving for cause. I feel like looking back, there's a, there's a degree of confidence in the, that the judge probably has to put more. Yeah, that I think I do recall that being said. Let's kind of let's err on the side of caution and exclude that one because John and I have been in trials where we hadn't tried a case in front of that judge. We had no jury consultant. We're taking great notes, and then we get to selection. And we're like, Judge, this is what he or she said. I, I'm telling you, it's right here. And of course, the seasoned defense will judge. I don't remember hearing that. And in that environment, the judge leaned with the more experienced lawyer and said, yeah, I don't, I don't think I remember that either. Now, we want a new trial on that case, but that's three years wasted, um, really. And I'm not saying it's always going to happen that way. I'm not suggesting there's any undue influence, but I do think it shows, if nothing else, a commitment to the court that you're here to ready to try this case to the absolute mm-hmm. best of your ability. And I'm sure it also communicates a few things to your opposing counsel who maybe didn't know that you're willing to take the case as serious. Yeah, the opposing counsel typically knows that um, when they see somebody that's on your side whom they've not seen before, um, you know, I I prefer to stay under the radar because I don't want them to necessarily know exactly who we are um, because uh, they'll usually find out right after the case is over um, when they get hit with a big verdict. But um, you know, by flying under the radar, you know, I hope that we're able to, um, you know, make a better impact on the plaintiff's um, side. Uh, we only do plaintiff's cases, by the way, unless it's a, a First Amendment case, and then we're always 
trying to defend the First Amendment too, but um, you know, typically it's only civil litigation that we're doing. So it's, um, we're very focused in this area. So this is like really what we're doing every week. And if a, if a, um, an attorney, I'm sorry, if a judge asks, who is this person sitting in the, at the table next to you guys, um, you know, we're okay saying who we are, like who are, uh, the, the name, um, we don't typically say the, the firm, um, that we're from just because we like to keep a little bit of anonymity there. Yeah, of course. That's smart. Well, I know that the judge but, uh, asked specifically in our case was like, is that a, she like knew, she was like, is that a jury consultant? And we were like, oh yeah. You know, give <laughs> good rapport. And, and so that was it. You know, just wanted to, was curious. But I think it did have that confidence for the judge when we made some of the cause challenges, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't really have I don't really have much else other than to just say and I, I look there's no affiliate deal here I don't if nobody ever hired jury X to listen to this it's not going to change my life so what I'm sharing is really my own personal and professional opinion but you know I I would just I want to thank you a for reaching out after that one undesirable outcome because I think you've you've already helped change the outcome of one of our clients lives substantially and I thoroughly believe that the next time we get to work together you're going to do the same for that client so thank you for that. Um, but maybe you can let people out there know, you know, where they can find you or who they should reach out to if they want more information to, uh, work with jury sure. X. Um, yeah, you can just go to our website, jury X.com. Um, and there's some contact information in there. Um, you can also email me or, uh, call our, um, number that's listed on there. My email address is Tiffany at jury X.com. And um, yeah, we would love to have you guys. Um, we want to help as many people as we can. And we're trying to bring this to as many cases as we can. Um, unfortunately, because of the cost, because of our costs, um, you know, it is a little bit more expensive. But um, what we typically have heard is um, if a case is over $100,000 in medicals or um, you know, uh, lost revenue, et cetera, then it's been worth it for them to use our services because they were able to increase um, uh, the, the verdict amount. And this is like statistically, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure, so. Just a brass tax. If you're a trial lawyer out there or an aspiring trial lawyer, you're never going to show up to trial without an opening statement ready to be delivered or with your exhibits to give to the clerk and the jury or an expert witness to get you past directed verdict or whatever. So stop showing up to do jury selection by shooting in the dark. At least that's my personal sentiment. So without further ado, thank you everyone for joining us today. Tiffany, you especially, we appreciate you carving out the time and bearing with us through, through some preliminary uh, technical issues and everybody out there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next one. Yep. Thanks guys. See ya. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Podcast.